Building influence is a learned skill. It's an investment that you can make in yourself. Having more influence can hold the keys to helping you achieve your dreams and to having the life and the impact that you hope to have. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. I'm delighted that you're here and that you're making this important investment of time in yourself. Hey friend, welcome to episode 276. Isn't it mind-blowing that we are literally two weeks away from the end of 2023? You may be starting to think about your goals and resolutions for the new year. If that's the case, I applaud you for that because it is so smart to start that process early so that you can really give yourself some time to think about and reflect on what you want to accomplish. But perhaps even more importantly is why you want to accomplish those particular goals and also how those goals align with your overall purpose and those areas where you hope to have an even bigger impact. When we're challenging ourselves to tackle difficult things and to push ourselves out of our comfort zones, as we typically need to do in order to accomplish big goals, the growth that we experience can be key to building confidence, not just needed to tackle that goal and see it through, but also the confidence that we need to tackle other challenges, including maybe the ones that we don't even know are coming. But friend, there's another layer to all of this, and it brings me to today's conversation. Sometimes when we think about or we contemplate our most audacious and bold goals, the biggest challenge can be fear. It can often get in our way, and that is why I am so excited to welcome this week's guest. Her name is Jean Case. Now, you may recognize the name because she's the CEO of the Case Foundation and also the Case Impact Fund, and she is also the chair of the National Geographic Foundation. Jean is a pioneer in the field of impact investing, and as she explains in our conversation, She believes in the power of businesses to do good. It's a really beautiful thing. Jean spent the first couple of decades of her career in the private sector, including in senior executive roles at AOL and before that, General Electric. Her book, which is entitled Be Fearless, The Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose, is an embodiment of what Jean has learned in her own life, as well as in her work at the Case Foundation. And specifically, the book focuses on, and so does our conversation, those factors that were present in every key area of innovation that that, that Jean and her group studied. Those factors also happened to be the factors that helped innovators really break through their fear, most importantly. So, As you start to think about setting goals for the new year, the way Jean frames how to be more fearless or to really look fear in the eye and do the hard thing anyway will give you some great context and perspective for tackling the most impactful and the most challenging of goals in the new year. Now, before I jump into the conversation with Jean, I want to take just a minute and say a quick thank you to you. 
Thank you for spending time with me, not just today, but every time that you've tuned into She Said, She Said podcast. Thank you for making this time, this time with me, um, with this podcast, an investment that you're making in yourself. And thank you also for sharing She Said, She Said podcast with others who you believe will appreciate what we're doing here. I am really, really grateful for that. So thank you once again. Today's episode will actually be our last for 2023 because I need to go off and spend some much needed and more focused time with my family, and I am really excited to do that. I will also, at the same time, be thinking about and dreaming about some great new ways that you and I can spend some time together in the new year, so stay tuned for that. But for now, friend, here is episode 276 my conversation with Be Fearless author, Jean Case. Jean, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks, Laura. I'm really excited to be here. Big fan of what you're doing in these podcasts. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And I'm really excited to talk to you as we look forward to a new year. We are just at that, that new year point in just a couple of weeks. And I'd love to talk about your book, which came out just a few years ago called Be Fearless. But before we get into that, what I, where I want to start the conversation is a bit about your story, because you talk about the fact that you're not a natural born risk taker. And I think sometimes when people see a title of a book called Be Fearless, they assume you're going to say, oh, just tackle it and do it and, you know, la, la, la. It's this sort of toxic positivity approach. But yeah. that is not at all right. what you have in the book. So let's talk a little bit about your story and this idea that you're not a natural born risk taker or that, that risk is does not come easily for you. Most definitely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things the book tries to draw out is that it's actually what we would think of as ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Mm. And that was really the big question, at least in my mind, through both my career experiences, but life experiences, is looking around and saying, you know, what is it about some people where they can break through or, you know, do something really extraordinary, which can come at a lot of different levels, right? Sure. And it was really that work that led us to the five principles that I think we'll talk about a little bit today. But the main thing is it is ordinary people. And I consider myself a very ordinary person <laughs> in terms of, you know, my life story. I was born in a town called Normal. Yeah, right. How much more ordinary <laughs> do you get? Okay. <laughs> you win. <laughs> With a cornfield in my backyard. And I was the youngest of four kids being raised by a single mom. Anyone looking at my life and my circumstances back then or at many points in my life when I was young would not have guessed that, you know, life could could turn out as it has. And I'm, of course, I feel grateful and, and blessed and humbled by a lot of things. But it's just really important to point out there was nothing about me. I didn't have any secret sauce or it really was, you know, this idea that you can look fear in the eye and keep going. And that's mm. hard for me and it's hard for most people, mm -hmm. but that seems to be a differentiator. And yes, the book is called Be Fearless, but I always make it clear right up front that I have fears all the time. I think being fearless is looking them in the eye and 
pushing past those when you can. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Maybe let's dig in a bit and talk about some of those big risks that you've taken throughout your career. You've had many, um, but I especially love when you talk about in the book, the risk that you took to leave your big fancy corporate job for something that was much less um, certain, let's say. So let's talk a little bit about that and how you made that decision. Sure. Well, as I said, you know, my family was very much a working class family. My mom was a waitress and my dad was a long haul trucker. And I didn't know a lot of professional people. I didn't know people who went to work in suits and things like that. So when I had the opportunity, which is a longer story I won't get into, but through mentoring and and different interning opportunities, you know, ultimately I went into technology I landed at GE, which at the time was the number one company in the world. And everybody that was young aspired to work for that company. You know, we don't necessarily see it that way today, but it would almost be the equivalent of, you know, whatever people think of going to Google or, you know, Facebook or Microsoft. And I just couldn't believe the good fortune I had. And it was very clear to me, uh, GE has a really good management training program, was super clear to me that I was on that track and going places. And then I got this call from a small startup that nobody had really ever heard of. And they asked if I'd come and uh, kind of be chief of marketing there. Um, And I made the leap. And that probably was the biggest risk I've ever taken professionally to leave that amazing sort of credential job and a good career track and everything to do something like that. But I saw the potential in the startup. And of course, that company was going to become AOL. Right. (laughs) And so we had the opportunity really to be part of the Internet revolution um, in its earliest days and in a really meaningful way where before we were done, half of all the internet traffic in the U.S. ran through AOL. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a different time, but, you know, it, and people told me I was crazy. I mean, literally their voices would get screechy and say, what are you doing? You know, right. you're ruining everything you've built. <laughs> but looking back, of course, I'm, I'm thrilled I, I took that big risk. Yeah. Can you talk about how you made the decision? I mean, was there a moment in time that you were like, okay, yeah, yeah, I really have to do this? You know, I talk a lot in the book about a motivating factor for me or, you know, an aspiration I had uh, career-wise was to try to empower others. And that's what led me to technology in the early internet days is I saw how it could level the playing field and Mm -hmm give access to information and communication and ideas that people otherwise, no matter where they lived in the world, might not have access to. Yeah. Um, and I tell the story of not having encyclopedias, you know, when I was growing up and how that really separated me. If teachers said, go home and do this, I didn't have the resources everybody mm-hmm. had. So I was super excited about that. I, I helped build an online service for GE and that's what took me there. And I just could see that the big corporate bureaucracy was not in the best position to drive this opportunity forward. And the scrappy, (laughs) small startup really, really had fire in the belly. And of course, for me, it was a huge career opportunity to take that, you know, senior leadership in marketing and be an officer of the company and everything at such an early age. Um, But it was exciting. And that really was the driver is if uh, my sort of North Star in you know, my life and in my career was, how can I use my time and talents to empower others? And yeah. I believe there was a bigger opportunity over there 
than there was over there. So if you know your North Star and you can check in with it as you make decisions, even when you're fearful, there's some sense that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. There's a, you, you talk, uh, you talk about in the book, how a lot of the individuals that you grew up in, grew up with in your small town in normal had just as much talent and capability, but didn't have the opportunities that you ultimately um, were given. And that that has become a big motivator around sort of how you've approached some of these things, which I think is a beautiful story. Yeah, I mean, and it was something that I look back on, and it's surprising to me that I could see that as a young person. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that I saw I was a privileged kid uh, to have a scholarship at a private school, full scholarship. So I wasn't like others. And the homes I went home to uh, were very, you know, privileged, nice people with great jobs and leadership roles, etc. But yeah, then I'd come back to my neighborhood and I'd think, well, these people work just as hard and they're just as committed, but they simply haven't had the opportunities that some of the people I see, you know, in my life uh, have. And so I do believe we can talk a lot about the underbelly of the Internet. And that's been sort of a heartbreak for those of us that were part of, you know, helping to build it. But there's no question it has brought opportunity and knowledge to people across the world. And like I said, ways they might not have otherwise accessed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose with anything that's as powerful as what we're talking about as it relates to the internet and social media, there are going to be really great benefits and there are going to be some big downsides. And it's sort of like this equilibrium, right? Yes, yes. And I think that's true with most breakthroughs, you know. Um, and, And the question is, can you ride it out knowing there is that risk that exists for the larger benefit. Um, And I think, you know, that's kind of what what we tried to do. But I mean, even back in the day with telephone, right? I mean, there were misuse of telephone that were kind kind of outrageous and still is, you know, (laughs) spam calls and all that. So there really isn't a technology that's developed that doesn't have something that we all either eye roll or are a little horrified by. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's jump into more of the meat of the book. Um, You developed ultimately, or part of Part of your work at, I believe, the Case Foundation yeah. is sort of how you came up with these principles. But you're drawing from a lot of your the stories of how you grew up, and there's sort of a number of threads that you're you're ultimately incorporating to bring them to bear in the book. So maybe let's talk a little bit about what those five sure. areas are that help you become a more confident or less fearful risk taker. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it starts with make a big bet, and I like mm-hmm. to say, you know. Obviously, we have a lot of listeners out there that are in different circumstances, right? But a big bet if you're in one place in life can look a lot different than a big bet if you're in another place in life. But all of us have something, I think, that drives us or that, you know, we've played with in our minds about what if or if I could. And I think, um, I I guess I should just take a quick pause here and say the principles I'm going to talk about are not according to me. We hired a team of social scientists to go to school on this question of, Why do some break out and some don't? And these Mm. principles were common wherever we saw breakthroughs. And Laura, that was true across geographies, across time, and across industries and sectors. These five principles are almost always present where there is breakthrough. But the first is make a big bet. And, you know, what's natural to us is to think in incremental terms, right? Like, I'm doing this. I want to take the next step. 
Making a big bet is really kind of thinking about the outcome you desire, what you're really trying to drive forward, almost an end, okay? And too often we think about the means. Right. So, um, you know, that's a, a really important principle and it's a starting principle. And I tell the story of a lot of people. I mean, the book is comprised of storytelling, as you said. Right. But people that you would never say, oh my gosh, they could do that. You know, the opening story is a woman who is just a family counselor and ultimately built a mental health network for our armed services and their families of over 10,000 mental health workers Amazing. in the nation, right? Mm-hmm. And she, I, I say in the book, she didn't even have an assistant. If you called her, you got her answering machine. And yet she was able to build this amazing dream. Um, so make a big bet. Uh, the next is take risks, you know? And um, it's funny because I wish I could see everybody that uh, is with us today. Because usually when you talk about risk, you can see body language. There are little twitches, sometimes the shoulders, and it's very clear we're getting into an area where people are uncomfortable. Right. Um, but it turns out that nothing great comes from the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, we really have to get outside of that and take some risks to achieve even the next level often in our lives. Next one is make failure matter. And this is another one where if I could see the, uh, the body <laughs> language when I'm talking about failure um, or the eyes batting or whatever, um, it's something that's really uncomfortable for people. And I yeah. wish it was different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Thomas Edison said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 things that won't work. Wouldn't that be, you know, wouldn't that just be a beautiful life if we could look at it that way? Right. Albert Einstein said, success is failure in progress, you know? So I think when we fail, we want to hang our heads and sometimes, you know, go away and not even engage. But boy, if we can dig deep and say, well, what can I learn from this and how can this make me better and stronger? That is the mark of everyone who's broken through. You know, Oprah has this great thing that she's done at Harvard, one of her commencement addresses. And she talks about when failure happens, you almost have to go mourn for a little bit. So it's not Mm. like, oh, I'm fine. That failure didn't matter. (laughs) You have to have that, you know, those moments or days or whatever. But then you got to pick it up and go forward. Yeah. Um, Reach beyond your bubble is the other principle. And it's a funny name. But really what it means is bring people together who aren't like one another. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really a diverse soup of backgrounds and talents and perspectives. And in America, I think we tend to believe, you know, it's the lone genius in the garage. But when you peel back that onion, as we did in these studies, that is not the case. The case of breakthroughs come when different ideas are at the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about it, Laura, if you and I were going after something, we, we look at the world differently, I presume. You know, you can cover my blind spots and I can help broaden the perspective you have and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And now imagine that in a team of five or seven or whatever. So reach beyond your bubble becomes very, very important. And of course, now all of the big consulting firms have affirmed through their research that diverse teams outperform. And we see it in finance. We see it in innovation. We see it mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. Okay, the last principle, which... I love is let urgency conquer fear. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about that is I found that to be a very real thing in my life, but more importantly, I really profiled stories of people who should not have been able to do what they did, but they put their fear aside because there was a sense of urgency that something needed to get done. And that is when they got out of their comfort zone. 
and, you know, in that, you know, particular arena, I like to uh, quote a comedian who's not known by everybody was really popular in her day. Um, and, uh, she said, you know, I looked at that and I thought somebody should do something about that. And then I realized maybe somebody is me. <laughs> and I think we all have those moments. Like right now in the world, yeah, things are churned up, aren't they? I don't know about mm-hmm. you, but like it's even hard to look at my news headlines. And, oh, yeah. you know, there's that stomach acid building. and ugh. But those actually are the times when someone says, you know, I've had enough. Or this mm-hmm. is just too urgent and I've got to jump in. So those I love, are I love that. I I love that. And I know there's another element to that, to that fifth bucket, which relates to overthinking and that sometimes we can talk ourselves or think ourselves out of action. So I'm curious related to that, to, 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 to that fifth bucket, if you see a correlation or if your team saw a correlation related to gender and overthinking, I think I know the answer to this question, Most but I'll, I'll pose it as if I don't. <laughs> I, I believe you have a lot of women in your audience. I do. <laughs> you know, really, women are so terribly diligent. And mm. it, I shouldn't say terribly, so wonderfully diligent. Beautifully diligent, yes. Uh, but it can keep, really paralyze them and keep them from taking action. Because, you know, the, what we say is don't overthink and overanalyze, do. Mm-hmm. So what's enough, right, data or whatever you have in front of you, stories, to make you jump in. But I do believe women who always want to get it right. And for good reason, because they have to try harder to get the same opportunities, et cetera. Um, I think it can, many women can be stopped by just overthinking, overanalyzing and not jumping in. And it's fascinating to watch that play out in an office or among a team or, um, you know, and, and I just think it's a huge opportunity for women to say, what feels urgent to me now? And I'm going to jump in. Yeah. You talk about um, a term called chucking it, right? If you're having trouble taking that, making that big bet or taking that huge action that ultimately maybe chucking it or breaking it up. Breaking into- it down. Yeah. Because I think the big bets can be really intimidating for some mm-hmm. people. But like, I'll give you an example, and this would not be in the realm of big bets, but it's just used as an example, and I used it in the book. You know, I never was like a runner in life. I do a lot of physical things, and I am quite active, but I just really never got into running. And so I decided, all right, that's crazy. I, I'm going to run, and I want to, and I want to be trained. And you know, she trained me basically to like run for 30 seconds, and then walk for three minutes, and run for one minute, and then run to the mailbox, run to the, she didn't say, let's do a 5k today. Like that just isn't the way it worked. Right. And this is true in any form of training we have in life. And so even if what you have is the top of the mountain as an aspiration, you know, figuratively speaking, Mm -hmm. how you're going to get there really is, you know, steps at a time and chunking that down, as you say, really thinking about how can I chunk it down? So in the next six months, this is where I'm going to be in the following whatever. And then eventually I get to where I want to go. Yeah. I I love all that in the context of thinking about goal setting for the new year. And I know you in the past have sort of used this methodology to really challenge yourself. And maybe a few years ago, you took on 
a, a whole list of things that you said I would never or didn't think I was capable of doing or would never do. Maybe talk a little bit about that experience and also give us any previews for what you might have on tap for 2024. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Um, I did tell the story in the book of uh, getting to a point in my life. I was challenged. It was kind of an outward bound kind of experience. Um, and someone said, I, this, well, this person didn't know me, but was kind of in reflection after the activity, he was talking to people and he said, is there some chance that you've just done what you know you'd be good at? Hmm. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, gosh, I think I do a lot of, you know, but he said, you know, what would it look like if you really took on something that you thought you couldn't do? Uh-huh. And to me, that was martial arts. I'd always been fascinated with mar- martial <laughs> no arts. No kidding. Never saw myself in that role. Anyway, long story short, three years later, I got my black belt in Taekwondo. Amazing. And, um, you know, it's just, I, I would have never in the world said I could leave the ground and break boards. <laughs> like that was never how I saw myself. <laughs> but actually by chunking it down through training, belt by belt by belt, You just grow more comfortable with all that you can do. And I just think that's such a great analogy for life, you know, but too often we get stuck in what we know we're good at and then we don't break out. So I do constantly try to do things that I don't think I'm going to be good at or, you know, it's something I thought I could never do. Maybe not because the skill itself is so hard. I just didn't see myself in it. Mm -hmm. And I try to take on new things all the time. Yeah. Maybe talk about the impact of the build of of constantly taking on new things. It's not enough to just take on those new things and then sort of stay at a, at a static right. pace. Why is it important to continue to do that consistently over time? Well, you know, first of all, I think it makes for just a much more interesting life. I'm not kidding. <laughs> right. Like that is the number one reason. <laughs> because when you're constantly learning and trying yeah. new things, it's very exciting. And, you know, I talk about in the book when we're kids, man, we run and jump, we climb trees, like, and then something happens as we turn into adults and we stop playing and stop trying things that we're not comfortable with. And I can just tell you from where I sit, it's a much better life when you change that up a little bit. And for every person that can be different, like I hesitate to use the black belt example, because I know there are many people out there that go like, no way. Okay, but what's your equivalent? What, right. you know, what have you looked at and thought, man, you know, like for me, um, I didn't, do a lot in the actual art of arts. Okay. Meaning, you know, painting, drawing, whatever. And, you know, I'm hoping that I can get a grip on that. I'm right now taking piano lessons, you know, amazing. I just think there are things around us. We'd all maybe aspire. And what I have found is when you do that, then that becomes the way you look at life. So then you're a little more comfortable with trying different things, maybe in your professional role or something you're doing in your home or the way you're interacting with your kids or your spouse or it just doing the same thing every day when you wake up and that's just comfortable. That's just not an exciting life. It, it isn't. It really isn't. Let's parlay what you just said as it relates to uh, raising kids, because we have a lot of parents listening, moms in particular, um, on, on who, who joined me on this podcast. And, you know, there's a real difference, I think, in the way that maybe you and I grew up, sort of at the point in which we grew up, versus the 
risks that we are comfortable allowing our kids to take now. And again, this is a, a bold generality. Everyone's different. Yes, and it sort of right. has their own level of risk tolerance and all those right. sorts of things. But maybe talk about the importance of encouraging kids to take smart, appropriate risk. Yeah. Well, you know, I think as parents, the whole idea is we're going to launch them at some point. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if all the scary experiences or the sense of a scary experience or taking on something that is scary could happen while they're with us so we Mm. can see them through it so that that first time doesn't happen when we're not there for them. And as you said, risk to every parent looks different. I think particularly for moms, We've been put in this world to shelter and protect our kids. Dads often more naturally will let kids, you know, take more risks. But the bottom line is the world is a place filled with risks. And how can we develop our kids by giving them enough risks so that we want them to fail, actually? If they're going to fail, do it when we're there to love them. Okay. Do it when we're there to help them fail forward. And, uh, I totally agree. I, my children are all grown now, and I, don't, I really feel for the parents raising kids today and the things kids can get exposed to. But I think there really is measured risk-taking that builds independence and resilience and a confidence overall about just taking risks. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. I think it's so incredibly important. And, and and just, you know, helping kids see those risks and feeling comfortable and knowing that it's actually okay to fail. Right. In fact, failure isn't really failure, right? It's right. it's just, it's learning. Right. And helping them see that at a really young age, you know, maybe we can get beyond this idea that risk-taking is so hard if we can kind of help them reframe all of that. I'd love to shift gears a bit and talk um, about your work around impact investing. That's an area uh, near and dear to your heart, and you spend a lot of time doing that. Maybe talk a little bit about some of the projects that you have underway currently. And I'll, I'll say as an aside, I talked to an awful lot of female entrepreneurs and female founders, uh, many startups who are you know, just launching their companies or those that have these incredible success stories. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, how you think about impact investing, the impact that you hope to have as sure. it relates to your strategy. Sure. Well, um, you know, I'll talk both personally, but also in, in my role as chairman of the National Geographic Society. Great. Um, but for many, many years, uh, we saw the potential of impact investing. And if I can just bring some clarity to the term, when we talk about impact investing, we're talking about investments in areas that are there to provide both a social and a financial return. So think of it as companies that can change the world or are addressing a specific area of need in the world. That could be, so a good example is Warby Parker. Most people know that brand, hot Mm -hmm. brand, you know, coveted organization. The founders there started that company as an impact company because every time you buy a pair of Warby glasses, someone in the world who otherwise couldn't afford glasses gets a pair. So it's a a little Tom's-like, but mm-hmm. the, the long and the short of it is not only do you get like the coolest, hippest glasses <laughs> in the process, you've actually helped solve an issue in the world. And now it's millions and millions and millions of glasses and people that have been served through what Warby does. Yeah. Um, you know, we're also seeing some impact companies. I know you've had some, you know, on your show focused on things like clean energy, focused on things like, you know, recycling. We could go right down the list of things 
um, that are great needs in the world for people to pay attention to. So the idea of impact investing is that, that you're getting something more than a financial return. And I often tell the story of when I was a uh, guest lecturing at um, Yale School of Management, which is their kind of MBA program. Uh-huh. This kid in the back, I was taking the class through impact investing, and this kid in the back raised his hand and he said, I just always wondered, why would you only settle for a financial return? And I thought it was such a powerful point right. because capital is a powerful tool. Particularly women are less comfortable with how to use it in more powerful ways. But you can actually get a good financial return and do something good in the world at the same time. And I guess just given the time we're in right now, I I need to say we're not talking about ESG here. We're Mm -hmm. talking about impact investing, which is companies trying to make a difference in the world with advancements and innovations. Maybe clarify a bit, um, because you do make that distinction. Why is that distinction important? Because ESG can apply to any organization, no matter what they do. They could be, you know, they could be, in some cases, I mean, you'd like to believe they wouldn't qualify on the e-front. They could sort of have nothing to do with impact. And yet they're, you know, they're carbon neutral or they have a good diverse Uh, you know, workforce or their governance Mm -hmm. is good. And those things are what's applied to ESG. ESG does not say, is there a core impact this company is trying to have or this fund that I would invest in? So it's it's a differentiator. And I think it's very confusing to people who don't pay close attention. But it's just important to note that impact has had, impact investing has had a major trajectory, whereas ESG has almost become a political football these days. Right. Right. You know, Laura, if I could just add one thing, one way for people to think about it is a couple of things need to be present for it to be an impact investment. There has to be intentionality, right? What is the impact we're aiming to have? How does that play out in this company? Measurement, so they're reporting against it, and transparency around those things. And I would say if those three things aren't present, it really isn't a true impact investment. Yeah. Okay. That's super helpful. That's super helpful. Jean, if you could, before I let you go, um, influence is a big topic that we talk about on this podcast. Right. I love it. And I, well, thank you. I, I use the term in a way that I think sometimes is a little unexpected for people, but I've heard so many elements of your story and the, the things that you've talked about today that to me really speak to this notion of influence. But I would be curious how you would define influence for yourself and the influence that you hope to have. You know, it's funny because I think a lot of people, I've been very privileged to be in, you know, positions that most people perceive have power. And I think the misconception around influence is that power is influence. And I actually think influence is how you gain power. And I just Mm -hmm. think sometimes we get that wrong. I think if people are coming in believing that their position is what gives them influence, they're likely going to fail. So I think with influence, it almost has to start with a little humility. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have to, in some way, uh, know your subject matter. I think you have to be a clear communicator. And can I just say, data doesn't really change hearts and minds, stories do. So the more stories we use, but, you know, generally speaking, I think it's not really about words. It's about how you use your time and your talents in a way 
the people say, I want to understand what makes her tick and I want to understand how she's looking at it. But it can't really begin with me saying, let me tell you how I'm looking at it. It's almost, you know, it's almost like people have aspirations of what they want to know or what they want to do. And if they see good models of those things, they'll pay attention when somebody has something to say on the matter. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. That's beautiful. Jean, it's the perfect place to leave this conversation. I really, really enjoyed the time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be with you. And again, thanks for all that you do. Oh, thank you. Hey, friend. Thanks so much again for joining us today. I would love to hear which aspects of Jean's Be Fearless framework resonate most with you. I think for me, both the way that Jean talks about failures but also the advice that she shares for not overthinking. That is oftentimes a tough one for me. And so I love what she said about, frankly, both of those topics. I'm going to be thinking about those as I set goals for myself for 2024. And I'd love to hear what's on your list as you start to think about your goals and resolutions. If you are so inclined, share your thoughts with me. You'll find me at info at she said dot media. You can email me right there or you can message me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook or threads. And you'll find me on all of those platforms at Laura Cox Kaplan. Friend, thank you again. Have a wonderful holiday and a joyous start to your new year. And I'll see you in 2024. And remember, She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media.